That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy. Like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi there, I'm Lauren McGoodwin, founder and CEO of Career Contessa, and you're listening to Season 4 of The Females, a podcast that deep dives into the world of women, work, and what it takes to build a successful and fulfilling career on your terms. This season, we're exploring the theme of courage, from the traditional definition to the new and unexpected ways that courage shows up in our own lives. Today's interview is with Dr. Leah Shepard, a researcher at Washington State University whose recent work found that attractive businesswomen are thought by supervisors, colleagues, and employees alike to be less trustworthy and more expendable. This phenomenon has been deemed the femme fatale effect, a term usually reserved for seductive yet manipulative women. People of all gender identities in any position hold this biased view toward attractive women. In today's episode, we'll discuss why this gender stereotype and bias exists and what you can do about it. Dr. Leah will explain why the workplace treats conflict among women differently and how you can address this imbalance as well. Don't forget to join us at the end for our last installment of Tough Questions as we wrap up season four. Well, thank you for joining the females today, Dr. Leah. Thank you for having me. So can you briefly describe your role as a researcher and professor? And I mean, is this something as a kid you were like, I know I want to work in higher education and be a professor or did this come over time? Definitely over time. I think it's hard when you're younger to imagine having to do so much school. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not necessarily something you set out to do. But just to give you a little bit of an idea of my role. So I'm mostly a researcher. I spend most of my time doing that. I only teach two classes per semester just in the fall and the spring. So I teach management and leadership classes. And then the rest of my time is devoted to researching topics like the ones we're going to talk about today. I really love research. That's what hooked me into this profession. So as I was going through my education, and I did a psychology undergraduate degree, so I pretty much knew I would have to do a little bit more. I'd have to do at least a master's degree to be able to get a good job in that field. And so I went on to my master's and then I started getting pretty heavily into the research because it was a thesis-based master's. And I really enjoyed doing that. Job opportunities when I finished my master's were not great. I was able to secure some scholarship funding to do a PhD. So it seemed like, okay, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. And then I think at some point during my PhD, I realized that I just love doing this. I love researching. I want to keep doing that. And I love being on a university campus. There's a just a fun energy And so I figured, okay, I'll just go the academic route and just keep doing what I'm doing, but get 
paid a salary for it, which, yeah. is, which is nice. So that's sort of the story there. Yeah, no, it's interesting because I think my alternative career would be working as a professor or a researcher. I love everything related to, as you said, like university campuses, there's an energy there. I was a university recruiter at one point. So I feel like you and I are aligned with that. And also Career Contessa was actually my, because I have a master's as well, was my master's thesis project. They gave me some initial funding to create the prototype for it. So yeah, those theses come in handy. <laughs> so where did your interest in researching how gender inequality in organizations is produced and reproduced really come from? Because I feel like sometimes part of what makes someone interested in researching something is either maybe they experienced it or, you know, someone close to them experienced it. And gender inequality is if you're a woman, then you've either experienced it or definitely know someone who has. Absolutely. Well, I feel like if it doesn't even matter your gender. If you are just a human being yeah, who is living and observing, how do you not notice that people are treated so differently based on gender? I mean, we find out, okay, someone is pregnant, they're going to be having a child, we immediately want to know what the gender is. So before this child even enters the world, so much is being put on them based on what is their biological sex, then people buy gifts that are for one gender or the other, like it's just immediate. And I don't know how we don't notice that yeah. how there's such a different set of expectations and stereotypes that surround being determined as a male or a female. And so this has just always fascinated me. And I've always enjoyed learning about gender differences where they exist, but also talking about where do those come from? You know, are they biological? Are they socialized? So it's really just fascinating to me. And then, of course, yes, I think, you know, I definitely notice situations in which I'm disadvantaged by my gender. But also I notice situations where men experience some disadvantages based on their gender. You know, men are also really restricted in terms of the behaviors and emotions that they can express because they're men. There's a very restrictive masculinity. So I think it affects all human beings. And I just... I find it really interesting and I love researching it. Yeah, you know, you bring up a good point. I mean, and I'm guilty of it too, right? When someone's pregnant, I'm like, oh, are you having a boy or a girl? Like, mm -hmm. so did your research find out that that's like societal pressures or wh why <laughs> Why are we so quick to need to def like know the gender? And then of course, you know, in our minds or probably even out loud, like we do start to come to some conclusions about that. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, so in my research doesn't look at that specifically, but I think it's pretty much the strongest basis for categorization. So as soon as we encounter someone in our environment, if we're not even necessarily aware of this, but we're, we're categorizing them based on what we're viewing, you know, we're making a determination of, okay, what is their gender? What is their age? What is their race? All of these things become very salient the moment that we meet someone. And so I think it just that is part of the reason why before someone even comes onto this planet, really, we're just so focused on how are we going to categorize them, because we are obviously then going to adapt our behavior, whether we really recognize it or not, based on where we categorize that person. So I don't know why we do it. I mean, yeah. it's, it's something that I wish we could break the habit of. Yeah, it does seem like we've got this, us being humans, have this almost like obsession with being able to categorize or define things because we had an episode a few back with Tess Viglin talking about career identities and how, you know, a lot of us identify really closely to what we do. And part of it is, the, you know, usually the second question we ask people is, what do you do? So it's interesting because we just really like to put people in a category. <laughs> we are much more comfortable with that. I think it's all about our sense making, really. We want to be able to make sense of the situations around us and the environment around us is often very ambiguous mm -hmm. and there's a lot of uncertainty 
And so we want to try to make sense and anything that can kind of speed up our sense making process probably does help us in certain ways, but obviously it hinders us in other ways when we then start to over rely on things like gender stereotypes or racial stereotypes. Right, right. That's a good point. Well, recently you actually had some very provocative research findings, which was that highly attractive businesswomen are considered to be less trustworthy less truthful, and more deserving to be fired. So I have a lot of questions about this because I feel like we've gotten the short end of the stick with most things. Why is this? Why are we seen as less trustworthy and you know more likely to get fired if you're an attractive woman? Which I feel like the reason why this frustrates me so much is I do think there's also a lot of pressure on women to be attractive. Of course. I know when these findings came out, a lot of people were very upset just at the findings because it's just this sort of tightrope that women have to walk where sure, if you don't put effort into your appearance and try to be attractive, there's probably going to be some certain stereotypes that will negatively impact you on that side. And then if you are really highly attractive, there could be some others that that we identified in this research. I think overall, I would still say that just based on what the research shows, you know, you're still going to have better outcomes to the extent that you are more attractive. And that would be true for both men and women. But it's just the story is a little bit more complicated for women in particular. And Really, I think it all comes down to this, what we call the, you know, we call it the femme fatale effect. And we call it that for a reason. We noted, you know, there is this cultural depiction of women when they're highly attractive as being the kind of seductress and they're going to manipulate other people to get their way. And I think probably there is some deep evolutionary basis to that, which I know that that might be a bit of a controversial perspective, but it's really hard to explain it. I think it gets perpetuated through the cultural social stereotype, but in terms of determining like where does this really originate and come from, it's really hard to identify a social origin for it. It does seem like it might be more heavily rooted in evolution. You know, we've seen that attractiveness in women, evolutionarily speaking, is very highly valued. But it's really also viewed as, and by highly valued, I mean that men typically seek it out in their partners, in their female partners. But at the same time, recognizing that that comes at a risk, that that really highly attractive female could be using him or she could perhaps cheat on him with another mate. She might have lots of opportunities to uh, engage in infidelity and then perhaps he could end up raising children that are not his own. And so that is obviously very heavily steeped in an evolutionary perspective. But interestingly, you know, we find in this research that when we prime people to feel more sexually secure, so we have them think about a time when they felt very secure in their romantic relationship, like they were the only person they fully trusted their partner. When they're first primed to feel that way, among those participants, we actually see the the effect reverses to the point where the attractive women are no longer seen as being less truthful and actually even slightly more truthful. So with your research, it's not just women at work, it's women as partners for, for other people too? So there is some research, not that I did, but we cite this research in in our paper that looked at perceptions of people as potential dating partners on a dating website or app. And what was interesting is that men who were looking at the profiles of women who, when they rated them as highly attractive, they had more interest in meeting those women and dating those women, but they also rated them as less trustworthy. So it was almost like they're somewhat trading off. They're saying, okay, I know I'm maybe going to be at higher risk here, 
but I still would prefer to date this highly attractive individual. So yeah, it would seem like this is not just something that's going to be restricted to a work context. This is just where we were investigating it. Yeah. Uh, that it would be a more generalized concern across numerous situations. It's so interesting. Did women have the same thing with attractive men? Like when, when, no, no. Oh. we did look at the participant gender to see how that would interact, if at all, you know, because a lot of people said that, well, wait, was this just, you know, women who are viewing highly attractive women as less trustworthy? But no, it's, you know, the women and the men. And we didn't find that the women and the men regarded the men any differently as a function of their attractiveness. So generally, what the study uncovered was either null effects, like no difference between attractive men and unattractive men in terms of their perceptions of their truthfulness, or it was slightly better to be an attractive man. So if we're just drawing a conclusion for men from this study, this series of studies, we would say that it's probably better to be attractive in terms of perceptions of your truthfulness and trustworthiness. Wow. I mean, (laughs) it's just, well, and I'm feeling like I'm trying to think back in like my own life and, and biases, maybe not as much at work, but just like in life. And like, there are definitely stereotypes, right? About, you know, uh, you know, attractive women, kind of some of the stuff you were saying. And of course, like there's the stereotype of like, it doesn't matter if a man's attractive or not, like they'll always be out there and be able to find someone or something, you know, like hear these stereotypes and whether you think them or not, like I'm sure a lot of people have heard this and media certainly has like, probably played some of that out as well. Let's assume, you know, most of us do that good looks are helpful in life and for advancement, right? Because I think there's also probably maybe not your research, but something out there that proves that like also being attractive can help you with that career advancement as well? Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's why overall, if we have to make a conclusion, it's obviously a very complicated story. But if you have to just do like elevator pitch, it's absolutely going to be better for your workplace outcomes to the extent that you're more attractive. We see it related to income as well. So more attractive people make more money across the lifespan as well. Right. And so on this research, you also can be mindful of the fact that there's this bias against you, that people might view you as being less trustworthy. Knowing that, is there anything that we can do to make that bias go away? Is there anything like as an attractive person, people like action items that we could do at work? Or is this sort of like, hey, it's there and there isn't a lot to do to change that bias? I'm sure there are things that can be done. And part of the problem too, with the research we conducted, we need to follow up with tracking this over time. So we're talking about experimental studies where we present stimuli to participants. And so they're just making quick evaluations. And so this might very much be a first impression thing where my initial impressions of this person, I don't really know them very well. I have very limited information, but I see that they're attractive. I see that they're a woman. Okay, I'm going to make some determinations about how to behave towards them. And that could work a couple of ways. So it might be the case that once we get to know somebody, this goes away. You know, we get some insight into their character and then we begin to trust them or not. But it also could be that that first impression has actually a lot of impact. It could be that well, I initially don't trust this person based off of pretty much my understanding of their gender and their appearance. Does that then change how I behave towards them? Am I somewhat less friendly? Do I act like I'm skeptical or suspicious of them? And then they behave in ways that start to reinforce that perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, like it, beca- it could become a self-fulfilling prophecy, essentially. So we don't really know how it goes over time. And that's definitely something we want to look at in future studies. That then means that, of course, you know, there might be lots of ways that this could be circumvented. So if someone felt like perhaps they are a victim of this, they would just want to be engaging in those behaviors that we know will build trust. 
So being warm, being approachable, being able to show some transparency around the decisions that you're making. So people understand why you're doing what you're doing and and have some justification for it. These are the types of things that can build trust in the people who are regarding you. Mm -hmm. And also the research proves, and maybe people already knew this, is like, being attractive does help in your career and and you mentioned even like with income levels. So, you know, at the end of the day, it's like that still is true. Like being attractive, it still helps you, right? It still helps you. Yes. And I would say overall, that would be the the conclusion that one could draw. And I think part of the reaction to some of to this research in particular too, is some people are like, well, boohoo, I'm not going to feel sorry for attractive women because I feel like they get a lot of advantages in in other domains. You know, being perceived as less trustworthy, of course, we can see that as having negative effects for career advancement, but there might even be situations under which that actually helps. So if you're perceived as somewhat less trustworthy, but your boss thinks, well, hey, we kind of need someone in this role, you know, we're considering promoting someone and we need someone in this role who maybe is not that trustworthy is, is going to behave in a way that that will benefit the organization. Like maybe we want them to be able to manipulate people in this role. I mean, that sounds really devious, but like, you know, we can't really put it past people. Yeah, in no. organizations. <laughs> um, then that it could actually work in your advantage in certain contexts to it, it, at least in terms of career advancement. If people think that, hey, you know, that person can manipulate others to their advantage and we want them to do that on behalf of our organization. So Mm -hmm. it's hard to say, you know, definitively, oh, this is a bad thing, first and foremost. And then, yes, of course, certainly we know that attractiveness is generally advantageous for both men and women. Right. Okay, let's talk about there's another familiar challenge for women in the workplace, which is that people tend to treat conflict among women differently than conflict among men. And particularly, they view it as harmful rather than a natural part of work life. So a few questions. Why is conflict among women viewed more negatively? So the reasons I propose that are likely behind this is it would boil down to the types of stereotypes we have about men and women. So we really do think that women tend to be more warm and nurturing than men on average. And we also, we tend to believe that they should be that way, that women should be warm and nurturing. And the reason we know that we have this sort of should about it is because when women aren't warm and nurturing, we often see a backlash against them in terms of how they're evaluated. So they're not seen as being very likable. You know, this happens all the time with female politicians. They have a hard time with this likability factor because they're seeking power and that immediately violates the stereotypes that we have about women. And so I think then when we apply this to conflict, we're now seeing two women who are behaving in a somewhat agentic, assertive, aggressive way, perhaps. And so this sort of compounds a sense of violation in this scenario, we would respond more negatively to it as observers. And then I think there's an additional stereotype that's layered on this. And and this one is a prescriptive kind of stereotype of, again, women should be warm and nurturing, and especially to one another. So there's sort of this expectation in our society that women are always going to help each other out. Women supporting women is a wonderful thing. And I think that that's all very well-intentioned, but the unintended side effect of it can be that when women have just healthy conflict and disagreement, they're suddenly perceived as not supporting one another. And, oh, this is a big to-do because they're not helping one another out. They must really dislike each other. It goes against what we expect 
from them in that scenario. And I think then that that has built up this sort of competing perspectives about women and their relationships. So on the one hand, they can oftentimes be described as being somewhat catty. You know, there's kind of the cat fight stereotype and we see that get reinforced a lot by the media. And then on the other side of it is this more prescriptive stereotype where we're saying, but women should be always supporting one another and helping one another. And so I think together, this just creates the perception that when women are in having a conflict, even if it's really not personal and it's just about the work at hand, it gets cast in this really negative light. Mm -hmm. So if someone's listening to this and they are the person who's having a conflict with someone at work, right? Like maybe they know that whenever they work with Susan on XYZ project, it's like Susan drives her crazy. Like, okay, sorry to all the Susans out there. I'm just using that name. But like, what could you do today to recognize like, okay, I have a healthy conflict with this person. And maybe even you and, you know, the quote unquote Susan in this scenario are even like fine with it. But you know that other people around you observe this and view it negatively. Like, what are some specific action items you could take, you know, that doesn't hurt your, I guess, like career advancement or how people view you? Right. So I think it's really important in any conflict, regardless of the gender of the person you're in that conflict with, is to make sure that you're keeping it very much about the task, that there's no personal things that are coming in here, like in terms of how you're speaking to them, you're not raising your voice, you're not showing hostility or anger, all of those things would signal that there's something deeper here, it's more personal. And then I think also we can be really careful about how we talk to other people about it. So, you know, going into your office and like ranting to a coworker, that might exacerbate any perceptions that they have about how negative or how big of a deal this conflict is. So, you know, we all need to be able to rant and vent, but maybe taking that to someone outside of the organization, like to a spouse or friend or therapist, whatever it might be. Right. Probably not, you know, trying not to air kind of our dirty laundry in the organization in front of others, I think can help. And then I think calling other people out too, if they're speaking upon their observations, if they are suggesting that you know, why can't you two women get along? Or why can't you women work together? Or something like this. I think, you know, just challenging that assumption by having a conversation with them about how that seems to be based on stereotypes. And, you know, I'm sure they've witnessed men having conflict at the office as well, and have it made such a big deal of it. So sort of calling attention to hypocrisy, perhaps in their, their observations. Yeah, I like that when someone, you know, maybe says like, oh, we know you two can't get along or you two don't work well together, calling it out right then and there. Could you say something like, you know, I mean, you're saying that we don't work well, but there are some men who don't. I mean, like, would it do you think yeah. it would be healthy to bring it back to the fact that this is kind of a stereotype mostly around women and not men? Yeah. Or even if you've personally observed conflict between men, like maybe at the last meeting, there were men who were disagreeing with each other. You know, I think saying something like, well, did you think that when David and Peter were having their conflict? Or would you say the same thing about them? Like being able to tie it to kind of concrete examples or observations can work really well. And that's also just, I think, if you wonder whether their observations are falling prey to gender stereotypes, I think a good way to check that, I do this even for myself, I think we should always be doing this is saying like, oh, would I think the same thing about a man? Would I think the same about a white person? Like just checking it, you know, to see, okay, Am I holding people to different standards based on their gender? Mm-hmm. And so I think sometimes just asking people outright, saying, would you say the same thing if it were a man? Or even, I think even more powerful can just be, you know, last week, John did this and you didn't say anything about him being an asshole or 
sorry if I can't swear. No, you, <laughs> you can say fine. anything about John being a jerk, but now all of a sudden Susan did this and you're, you know, calling her the B word, but the behavior was exactly the same. Yeah. Sometimes I feel like people are, employees can be harder on a female manager than they are on like a male manager. And I mean, part of that is maybe there's just more examples of male managers out there. But what about if you're a female manager and maybe you sense that your team, you know, maybe kind of, I don't know, says things about you or has this feeling about your actions, maybe like related to the conflict. I mean, what's something you could do in the reverse? So it's less about calling it out at a meeting, but more about addressing like maybe the fact that people, I don't know, treat you differently as a manager because they expect, as you said, like they expect women to be really supportive of other women. Like an example might be if you're a female manager and your female employee comes and asks you for time off or something and you say no for whatever reason, like I feel like in your research, too, it would almost back up the fact that, yeah, they would be held to a higher standard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I, women managers, women leaders, they're under a microscope. They're under a great deal of scrutiny. Their behaviors get evaluated really harshly sometimes. And especially with the whole supporting other women thing, I can see a situation in which, again, it's a double bind. Because if you give what is then perceived as some type of special treatment, to your female subordinates, you're going to be seen as giving them this preferential treatment to help them advance. So it's almost like even if you're seen as supporting them, but to, you know, supporting them too much, that can be detrimental because then you're seen as, you know, then people are going to say it's reverse sexism against men or, but then if you're not warm enough, it can go the other way. And now you're sort of the queen bee. This is a really, really tough one. And really what the research says is that women who are in leadership positions have to do this complete balancing act. So to the degree that they can be both assertive, but also warm and caring when the context calls for it, they will be perceived as more effective leaders. So I think that's really, really difficult advice. You have to know when the situation would call for more assertive kinds of behaviors. And then you also have to be able to respond to your followers, your direct reports, and be able to sense when do they need some more compassion and care? Right. And that's really not easy at all to do. And I think that that's why it is a big part of the reason why women continue to be disadvantaged when they try to move up from those kinds of lower and mid-level management positions, because they're just being held to such a crazy standard in those roles. Yeah. I mean, I feel this way sometimes with queer Contessa. So do you ever feel like the more you do this research, the more you're like, I don't have great answers. I just am able to show that there's more and more double binds or bias against women. Like sometimes do you ever feel like your research, you're like, I don't want to say depressed by it, but it's kind of like, oh, another thing that is harder for women. Yeah. I mean, I I guess I'm able to remove myself from it a bit. Like I don't, I don't really get emotional about it. I find it fascinating either way. It doesn't personally bother me. And and I try to use the information myself. So I try to think about ways that I can kind of apply it in my own life and in my own career. But I can understand a lot of people will say that like, oh, this is so depressing, and it really bothers me. And I definitely understand that I feel as though I don't really love giving advice anyways, because all I want to do is share the knowledge really and say, okay, women and men can do with this what they want, they can apply it themselves to their lives. And I feel sometimes like when you're giving advice to women based on this, this research, it can kind of feel like you're putting so much of the onus on them to change or do something differently. And really, it's very obvious that this is all at a much higher level, like it's going to be really hard for just women with individual behavior 
to change this dramatically. It, we basically have to reconceptualize what we think about gender and we have to change gender stereotypes. I think the good news is that we are changing that very slowly over time. Like we are starting to expand our brains in terms of what gender means and the fact that, hey, not everybody identifies as male or female or not everybody identifies with the gender that would correspond to the sex they were assigned at birth. Like we're starting to open our minds and see this differently. And then I think a lot of more concrete changes will follow from that. Right. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think it's slow progress, but it's certainly progress. Sometimes it is tough to give advice without it feeling like you're just telling women more things that they can do to edit or change versus it doesn't always feel like we're giving men a lot of tips on how they can edit and change. But partially that's because the show is called The Females. And so we focus on the women point of view. But I understand the you know, the conundrum there also with sometimes giving advice. I think it's important. And I also think that these are messages, especially your research, as you said, it's not just for women. This is for men and women. And Mm -hmm. maybe we just need to make sure there's more of these messages also being directed at both. So it doesn't, you know, women also don't feel like they're constantly being asked to, to do more or to be the fixers of this. Exactly. Yeah. It's really important, I think, to include men a lot more in these conversations. Yeah. So our last question before we move into rapid fire is, what was the last courageous act you made and what was the result or impact of it? Yeah, this is a tough one. I guess I I also think of courageous as like running into a burning building. And I know that that's (laughs) probably not what you mean by it. But when I think about things that I've done that have scared me or that have been outside my comfort zone, which I think is consistent with the concept of courage. I think it's probably, you know, changing my life quite a bit to pursue the career that I really wanted moving to new cities. So I had, you know, I moved to a new city to start my PhD and then started again, pretty much at age 30. After I'd finished my PhD, trying to get a research tenure track faculty position, you pretty much have to be willing to go wherever the best job is. And so, you know, that took me out of Canada, which is where I had grown up and spent my life up until age 30 and brought me to the US. And it felt pretty scary, I guess, just starting all over again and kind of leaving everything behind. But that approach has just worked pretty well for me, I guess, in terms of really thinking about, you know, what is the kind of career that I want? And I I really want to do something that's going to make me happy on a day to day basis. And recognizing that that's going to take me to different places, and that that can feel really scary. But I kind of have to follow, I think, what gives me the most, you know, personal meaning at the end of the day, which is, being able to do the kind of work that I'm doing. Right. Also, there's probably a feeling of like, you're one of the really lucky ones because you get, you know, you you have so much purpose in what you're doing and you're so attached to it. So there's also this feeling of like, even though you had to move and uproot your life, you're also at the end of the day, one of the very lucky people out there who loves their job, which is really special too. Yes, absolutely. It's such an important, I think I'm so lucky that I have the job that I have because I don't really, you know, I never have that sense of like, oh, it's Sunday. I have to go back to work. I mean, I work a lot. Like I work a lot of weekends. There's very few tasks that I have to do that feels like work. Right. Um, most of it I enjoy. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm the luckiest person in the world in that regard. Well, it's called work for a reason, right? <laughs> so that's, it's also one of those things, even if you love it, it's still, as you said, a lot of work. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So moving into rapid fire, if you weren't a professor and researcher, you'd be? A writer in some context. That some makes type sense. Of writer. A book you'd recommend is? Right now I'm reading A City of Girls by Elizabeth Gilbert and I'm loving it. Oh, nice. And also Alicia Menendez has a book called The Likeability Trap that just came out, which I feel like kind of goes hand in hand with some of the stuff we're talking about. And it's very good. Your next travel destination is? 
it'll be uh, Vancouver. Nice. Yeah. Um, and what are you looking forward to in 2020? Well, I'm currently up for tenure and I will find out if I get tenure in 2020. So I'm just really hoping that that's a positive decision, but we will see. <laughs> so tenure means that you get to be a professor for life. I've, I'm like so yeah. confused by this. Well, so you get tenure at the university that you're with. So you can get tenure at a university. And then if you were to go back on the job market, you might not get hired with tenure somewhere else. Like you might have to go through the process again. So it's not like, okay, you're good forever now. But generally speaking, yeah, I mean, you get bumped up to the rank of associate professor and you have a lot more job security. The bad thing is just that if you don't get tenure at the university you're at, you have to leave. So it's not oh. like you can just stay in an untenured role. So wow. that's the that's the reason why I really want to get tenure. Yeah, well, we're all sending you the best of luck for that. But it's funny to me how like higher education, like the rules that you guys have for your jobs versus like corporate America versus a startup versus, you know, it's it's know. You know, it's like a it's whole wild. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, Dr. Leah, thank you so much for joining us today. And I'll put some links to your research in the show notes for everybody. Anywhere else or any other resources they should check out if this is something they want to, you know, learn more about or just kind of be more aware of? Well, they can, I have, my website is drleahshepherd.com. I think that's right. And I keep that pretty updated with my research. Uh, I also have a profile with Washington State University. And so I keep that up to date. But yeah, those would be places where they can see research that I'm doing. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Well, welcome to our favorite part of the show. It's called Tough Questions. And it's where Kayleen and I, who's our head of content, Career Contessa, bring each other one tough question and answer it honestly each week. And we'll also start with some behind the scenes stuff. So Kayleen, let's start with behind the scenes in your world. <laughs> and I do. I always You start always it. laugh. <laughs> I don't know why. I guess that's a nervous tick. And I think I've already established that. Anyway, behind the scenes right now is we're doing a lot of end of year slash beginning of year stuff. So it's roundups. It's kind of our favorite time of the year to go over everything and see what our favorite things are that we created this year. And then we usually put it into a digestible list. And I'm putting that together right now. It's actually really fun because it makes you realize how much I think I asked every team member, you know, what did you do this year? And everybody came to me and was like, nothing. And then yeah. I was like, think a, little, think a little more and get back to me. And everybody, like, I mean, everyone got married. Like, yeah, <laughs> you wrote a book. Aliyah started a podcast. It's like, okay, everybody did a lot. So. A lot of stuff. I but, know. It, it's hard to think back on that, though. Yeah, your go-to is always like, uh, nothing. I don't know. I also, when you asked me that, I remember thinking, like, one of the things that was on my list I was like, but I didn't do that this year. I did that last year. And you all were like, Lauren, no, that was in February. February <laughs> it was 2019. In Mar it was March. Or, or March. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> do you remember growing up to like VH1 or MTV would do these things after the new year and they would like count back of like oh, the, yeah. you know, top 100 moments or something? Like, I feel like Roundup season is one of the best seasons. Yeah. Everyone loves a good like, recap of the year highs yeah. and lows <laughs> you know I, do. I love roundup season yeah well behind the scenes in my world I just came back from Austin Texas I was speaking to a company there who's gearing up for annual reviews and actually kind of similar which is very much like 
what have you done in the last year? How can you prepare to be concise, but also articulate about what it is that you've accomplished? So that was kind of cool. And Austin and everyone who lives in Austin, that is an amazing city. I love it. Ate way too much food. But one of the things Mm. there that I love is this place called Joe's Coffee Shop. And they make, you know, bite-sized, like, the breakfast tacos. Yes, you know. Oh my is god, they're the one so that's good. Next to Hotel San Jose. Yep. Those um, are good. So I went there like every single day. <laughs> um, I just love that city, and I went there actually for this thing that in March that we were just talking about, and I was doing something in collaboration with Goop, and it was during South by Southwest, so it was kind of cool to be back there. I mean, I like speaking to the companies, and it's good to be back in like the huddle of like what's going on, what are you thinking about, like. You know, this one girl was telling me a story about how her boss, like, intimidates her. Like, I don't know. It's like, so basically what I'm trying to say is, like, all of that stuff becomes ideas for yeah. future articles for Career Contessa. So, like, always be sending us your your questions or things that are going on in your world because we will investigate them mm-hmm. and try to solve your challenges for you. But it's good if we have, like, really specific ideas. The more weird thing that's happening at your <laughs> office, the better for us. So yeah, that's kind of behind the scenes of what I've been doing. And then like you said, just kind of gearing up to like the calm before the storm of, you know, starting a new year. We always do new year, new career. So I'm excited. Okay. Should we move into tough questions? Sure. All right. Do you want to start? Before okay. this, we should all <laughs> tell everyone too, before this, Kayleen was like, Ooh, I have a really good one. <laughs> it's really hard. <laughs> Well, I just know how I would answer mine. So I was like, oh. Okay, so what type of impression do you think you give off when you first meet someone? (laughs) Is this because I just told you the sorority story? No. Oh, gosh. (laughs) I was telling Kayleen the story of when I was in a sorority and how I could never find anywhere quiet to study and probably didn't give off a good impression with that. Anyway, I don't think I probably always give off the most warm and friendly impression until, like, I start chatting with people, I think. But, like, if I show up somewhere, I'm kind of this— introverted extrovert in that way where if I show up somewhere and I don't know anybody and I I have trouble kind of like inserting myself into conversations Mm -hmm. but once I'm in them I'm I I enjoy like talking to people and asking them about themselves so in terms of like the impression I give off I would say I don't think people are running up to give me hugs like I'm not (laughs) I don't don't think I'm giving off that impression but I don't think anyone is I hope not is describing me as like intimidating like someone you can't approach or Mm -hmm. I don't know what was your first impression of me of you yeah oh uh well it was an interview setting yeah so so that's it was was different it was kind yeah (laughs) you weren't gonna give me a hug no I'm just kidding (laughs) it would have been cool if I came and gave you a hug Oh, man. I, my mom always says that. She's like, look, I don't give off these warm and gooey vibes, but that's just who I am. And, yeah. I, I, and I think sometimes, like, if you're raised by someone like that. So my sister-in-law is, like, really warm and friendly and, like, right away, like, very hostess with the mostest. And her parents are like that. Mm-hmm. So I do think part of it, it kind of comes from your environment. That was a good question. <laughs> okay, so my question for you is what is a goal that you have for 2020? Oh, okay. I actually wrote this down yesterday, so oh, okay. it's fresh in my mind. But I'm having a baby in the first quarter of 2020. <laughs> so my goal is to Your like, quarterly goal is to give birth? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Because I know that there's going to be like so many unexpected and like crazy things that I just can't even anticipate now. So it's just to like slow down and like moment by moment not get super overwhelmed because I can tend to get if everything's like not laid out like I like it, I tend to get really overwhelmed. That's what I'm trying to do actually starting now, trying to have like more of a routine, like getting up earlier, maybe going to the gym in the morning, like making my own time before this like other creature comes in and destroys the creature. (laughs) 
destroys it all. But yeah, it's just taking it moment by moment and really enjoying it because I know it's going to be really overwhelming. But that like, I'm going to look back and be like, oh my God, I hope I enjoyed that time when I had this like tiny baby. Are you routine oriented? Do you like a routine? I do and I don't. Like I am routine oriented, but I also like to leave a little flexibility because I don't like every day to be exactly the same. Yeah. It's like this sense of freedom, I guess. Yeah. We had someone on the podcast once, Laura Vanderkam in season two, and she talked about how like the end of every Friday to like kind of plan out your next week. And while I really like that and I do, I think it's better than not doing any planning, I almost work a little better kind of going through the next day, the night before. So instead of like a whole week of planning, maybe like loose planning for the week, you know, maybe these are the top three things I really want to make sure I get done next week. But then every night before you know, kind of going to bed or leaving the office, whatever works for you, kind of nailing down like what I'm going to do tomorrow. And more specifically, like what time I'm going to wake up, when I'm mm-hmm. going to do this, because that just seems like planning for the next 24 hours <laughs> seems so much more manageable <laughs> than planning for the next like seven days ahead of you. So I also have a lot of tips in my book. I interviewed quite a few people about like how to delegate and time management because I was like, there are some people who get so much done in a week or a day. And mm-hmm. then there are other people where you're like, it just time just like escapes them. Like my sister is a she likes to diddle daddle. Uh, my mom's like she's a diddle daddler. <laughs> it's funny we call my sister. My brothers have a song. <laughs> Her name's Aggie, uh-huh. and they go a dilly, a dally. I'm Aggie. <laughs> <laughs> that is such an older brother thing to do. Like we're not just going to call you this. We're going to create a whole song and sing it to you. Yeah. Time management, man. Goal for 2020 is like always trying to figure out how to you know, be more thoughtful about that. All right. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of The Females. It's our last for season four. I'm Lauren McGoodwin, and I'd like to personally thank our team that works behind the scenes to help produce the show, including Kayleen Holden, Elise Villa, and Aaliyah Kamalova at Career Contessa, along with our network, Dear Media. I'd also like to thank our advertisers who help support the show, as well as all of you for listening and checking out those great products. While we get back to work on creating a new season of The Females, we'd like to ask for your help in supporting the show, starting with letting us know what you'd like to see on future episodes. What do you like and what could you live without? What are your biggest career challenges that you'd like help with? You can DM us through our Instagram page, or you can email us at info at careercontessa.com. Secondly, please subscribe to Career Contessa. Many of the topics that we discuss on this show get their start via our articles, our videos, online courses, and more located right there on careercontessa.com. Plus, each week we deliver real talk career advice straight to your inbox through our newsletter. I've included a link for subscribing in the show notes. Lastly, subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. That's the best way to make sure that you don't miss us when we're back with season five.